Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Ochere. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. If you're a new friend, welcome. If you're a returning friend, thank you for your continued support. If you haven't already done so, please leave a rating at Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser, which will help more friends find the show. Please also consider becoming a financial supporter of the show via Patreon, for which you'll receive my undying gratitude. You'll also receive early access to episodes, whether you choose to contribute $1, $3, or $5 per month. For more information, click support on AmericanEpistles.com. Usually in an episode, I discuss a topic or event and include first-person narratives from several people who witnessed or experienced it. This is the second episode of a series devoted to the life and letters of a single person, Eleanor Pruitt Rupert. In 1909, she was working in Denver as a housekeeper for Juliet Coney, a widowed schoolteacher from Boston. As we learned last time, Rupert moved from Denver to Wyoming to be a housekeeper for homesteader Clyde Stewart and to eventually become a homesteader herself. Her letters to Mrs. Coney were later published in the Atlantic Monthly. I will read two of her letters today, and I will mangle both a Scottish accent and a Southern accent. September 11th, 1909. Dear Mrs. Coney, This has been for me the busiest, happiest summer I can remember. I have worked very hard, but it has been work that I really enjoy. Help of any kind is very hard to get here, and Mr. Stewart had been too confident of getting men, so that haying caught him with too few men to put up the hay. He had no man to run the mower, and he couldn't run both the mower and the stacker, so you can fancy what a place he was in. I don't know that I ever told you, but my parents died within a year of each other and left six of us to shift for ourselves. Our people offered to take one here and there among them until we should all have a place, but we refused to be raised on the halves and so arranged to stay at grandmother's and keep together. Well, we had no money to hire men to do our work, and so had to learn to do it ourselves. Consequently, I learned to do many things, which girls more fortunately situated don't even know have to be done. Among the things I learned to do was the way to run a mowing machine. It cost me many bitter tears because I got sunburned, and my hands were hard, rough, and stained with machine oil, and I used to wonder how any Prince Charming could overlook all that in any girl he came to. For all I had ever read of the prince had to do with his reverently kissing her lily-white hand or doing some other fool trick with a hand as white as a snowflake. Well, when my prince showed up, he didn't lose much time in letting me know that Barkis was willing, and I wrapped my hands in my old checked apron and took him up before he could catch his breath. Then there was no more mowing, and I almost forgot that I knew how until Mr. Stewart got into such a panic. If he put up a man to mow, it kept them all idle at the stacker, and he just couldn't get enough men. I was afraid to tell him I could mow, for fear he would forbid me to do so. But one morning, when he was chasing a last hope of help, I went down to the barn, took out the horses, and went to mowing. I had enough cut before he got back to show him I knew how, and as he came back manless, he was delighted as well as surprised. I was glad because I really liked to mow, and besides that, I am adding feathers to my cap in a surprising way. When you see me again, you will think I am wearing a feather duster, 
but it is only that I have been said to have almost as much sense as, quote, Amon, end quote, and that is an honor I never aspired to, even in my wildest dreams. I have done most of my cooking at night, have milked seven cows every day, and have done all the hay cutting, so you see I have been working. But I have found time to put up 30 pints of jelly and the same amount of jam for myself. I used wild fruits, gooseberries, currants, raspberries, and cherries. I have almost two gallons of the cherry butter, and I think it is delicious. I wish I could get some of it to you. I am sure you would like it. We began haying July 5th and finished September 8th. After working so hard and so steadily, I decided on a day off. So yesterday, I saddled the pony, took a few things I needed, and Jereen and I fared forth. Baby can ride quite well. We got away by sunup, and a glorious day we had. We followed a stream higher up into the mountains, and the air was so keen and clear, at first we had on our coats. There was a tang of sage and of pine in the air, and our horse was mid-side deep in rabbit brush, a shrub just covered with flowers that look and smell like goldenrod. The blue distance promised many alluring adventures, so we went along singing and simply gulping in summer. Occasionally, a bunch of sage chickens would fly up out of the sagebrush, or a jackrabbit would leap out. Once we saw a bunch of antelope gallop over a hill, but we were out just to be out, and game didn't tempt us. I started, though, to have just as good a time as possible, so I had a fish hook in my knapsack. Presently, about noon, we came to a little dell where the grass was as soft and as green as a lawn. The creek kept right up against the hills on one side, and there were groves of quaking asp and cottonwoods that made shade, and service bushes and birches that shut off the ugly hills on the other side. We dismounted and prepared to noon. We caught a few grasshoppers, and I cut a birch pole for a rod. The trout are so beautiful now. Their sides are so silvery, with dashes of old rose and orange. Their speckles are so black, while their backs look as if they had been sprinkled with gold dust. They bite so well that it doesn't really require any special skill or tackle to catch plenty for a meal in a few minutes. In a little while, I went back to where I had left my pony browsing with eight beauties. We made a fire first, then I dressed my trout while it was burning down to a nice bed of coals. I had, I had brought a frying pan and a bottle of lard, salt, and buttered bread. We gathered a few service berries, our trout were soon browned, and with water, clear and as cold as ice, we had a feast. The quaking aspens are beginning to turn yellow, but no leaves have fallen. Their shadows dimpled and twinkled over the grass like happy children. The sound of the dashing, roaring water kept inviting me to cast for trout, but I didn't want to carry them so far, so we rested until the sun was getting low, and then started for home, with the song of the locusts in our ears, warning us that the melancholy days are almost here. We would come up over the top of a hill into the glory of a beautiful sunset with its gorgeous colors, then down into the va little valley already purpling with mysterious twilight. So on, until, just at dark, we rode into our corral, and a mighty tired, sleepy girl was powerfully glad to get home. After I mailed my other letter, I was afraid that you think me plumb bold about the little Bo Peep, and was a heap sorrier than you think. 
if you only knew the hardships these poor men endure. They go two together, and sometimes it is months before they see another soul, and rarely ever a woman. I wouldn't act so free in town, but these men see people so seldom that they are awkward and embarrassed. I like to put them at ease, and it is to be done only by being kind of hail-fellow-well-met with them. So far, not one has ever misunderstood me, and I have been treated with every courtesy and kindness, so I am powerfully glad you understand. They really enjoy doing these little things, like fixing our supper, and if my poor company can add to anyone's pleasure, I am too glad. Sincerely yours, Eileen Rupert. Mr. Stewart is going to put up my house for me and pay for my extra work. I am ashamed of my long letters to you, but I am such a murderer of language that I have to use it all to tell anything. Please don't entirely forget me. Your letters mean so much to me, and I will try to answer more promptly. The next letter contains a quote of the N-word, and I've inserted a tone in its place. September 28, 1909 Dear Mrs. Coney, Your second card just reached me, and I am plumb glad, because, although I answered your other, I was wishing I could write you, for I have had the most charming adventure. It is the custom here for as many women as care to, to go in a party over into Utah, to Ashland, which is over a hundred miles away, after fruit. They usually go in September, and it takes a week to make the trip. They take wagons and camp out and, of course, have a good time, but the greater part of the way, there isn't even the semblance of a road, and it is merely a semblance anywhere. They came over to invite me to join them. I was of two minds. I wanted to go, but it seemed a little risky and a big chance for discomfort since we would have to cross the Uinta Mountains and a snowstorm likely any time. But I didn't like to refuse outright, so we left it to Mr. Stewart. His, quote, year nay gang, end quote, sounded powerful final, so the ladies departed in awed silence, and I assumed a martyr-like air and acted like a very much abused woman, although he did only what I wanted him to do. At last, in sheer desperation, he told me the, quote, Bairn can I stand a treep, end quote, and that was why he was so determined. I knew why, of course, but I continued to look abused, lest he gets into his head that he can boss me. After he had been reduced to the proper plane of humility, and had explained and begged my pardon, and had told me to only consult my own pleasure about going and coming and using his horses— only not to expose the baron why I forgave him, and we were friends once more. Next day, all the men left for the round-up to be gone a week. I knew I could never stand myself a whole week. In a little while, the ladies came past on their way to Ashland. They were all laughing and were so happy that I really began to wish I was one of the number, but they went their way and I kept wanting to go somewhere. I got reckless and determined to do something real bad. So I went down to the barn and saddled Robin Adair and packed on, quote, Jeems McGregor, end quote. Then Jereen and I left for a camping out expedition. It was nine o'clock when we started, and we rode hard until about four, when I turned Robin loose and, saddle and all, for I knew he would go home and someone would see him and put him into the pasture. We had gotten to where we couldn't ride anyway, so I put Jereen on the pack and led Jeems for about two hours longer, 
Then, as I had come to a good place to camp, we stopped. While we had at least two good hours of daylight, it gets so cold here in the evening that fire is very necessary. We had been climbing higher into the mountains all day and had reached a level tableland where the grass was luxuriant and there was plenty of wood and water. I unpacked Jeems and staked him out, built a roaring fire, and made our bed in an angle of a sheer wall of rock where we would be protected against the wind. Then I put some potatoes into the embers, as Baby and I are both fond of roasted potatoes. I started to a little spring to get water for my coffee when I saw a couple of jackrabbits playing, so I went back for my little shotgun. I shot one of the rabbits, so I felt very like leather stocking because I had killed but one when I might have gotten two. It was fat and young, and it was but the work of a moment to dress it and hang it up on a tree. Then I fried some slices of bacon, made myself a cup of coffee, and Jerine and I sat on the ground and ate. Everything smelled and tasted so good. This air is so tonic that one gets delightfully hungry. Afterward, we watered and restaked jeans. I rolled some logs onto the fire, and then we sat and enjoyed the prospect. The moon was so new that its light was very dim, but the stars were bright. Presently, a long, quivering wail arose and was answered from a dozen hills. It seemed just the sound one ought to hear in such a place. When the howls ceased for a moment, we could hear the subdued roar of the creek and the crooning of the wind in the pines. So we rather enjoyed the coyote chorus and were not afraid, because they don't attack people. Presently, we crept under our Navajos and, being tired, were soon asleep. I was awakened by a pebble striking my cheek. Something prowling on the bluff above us had dislodged it, and it struck me. By my waterbury it was four o'clock, so I rose and spitted my rabbit. The logs had left a big, coal, big bed of coals, but some ends were still burning and had burned in such a manner that the heat would go both under and over my rabbit. So I put plenty of bacon grease over him and hung him up to roast. Then I went back to bed. I didn't want to start early because the air is too keen for comfort early in the morning. The sun was just gilding the hilltops when we arose. Everything, even the barrenness, was beautiful. We have had frosts, and the quaking aspens were a trembling field of gold as far up the stream as we could see. We were way up above them and could look far across the valley. We could see the silvery gold of the willows, the russet and bronze of the currents, and patches of cheerful green showed where the pines were. The splendor was relieved by a background of sober gray-green hills, but even on them gay streaks and patches of yellow showed where rabbit brush grew. We washed our faces at the spring. The grasses that grew around the edge and dipped into the water were loaded with ice. Our rabbit was done to a turn, so I made some delicious coffee. Jerine got herself a can of water, and we breakfasted. Shortly afterwards, we started again. We didn't know where we were going, but we were on our way. The day w that day was more toilsome than the last, but a very happy one. The meadowlarks kept singing like they were glad to see us. But we were still climbing and soon got beyond the larks and sage chickens and up into the timber, where there were lots of grouse. We stopped to noon by a little lake, where I got two small squirrels and a string of trout. 
We had some trout for dinner and salted the rest with the squirrels in an empty can for future use. I was anxious to get a, get a grouse and kept close watch, but was never quick enough. Our progress was now slower and more difficult, because in places we could scarcely get through the forest. Fallen trees were everywhere, and we had to avoid the branches, which was powerful hard to do. Besides, it was quite dusky among the trees long before night, but it was all so grand and awe-inspiring. Occasionally there was an opening through which we could see the snowy peaks, seemingly just beyond us, toward which we were headed. But when you get among such grandeur, you get to feel how little you are and how foolish is human endeavor, except that which reunites us with the mighty force called God. I was plumb uncomfortable, because all my own efforts have always been just to make the best of everything and to take things as they come. At last we came to an open side of the mountain where the trees were scattered. We were facing south and east, and the mountain we were on sheared away in a dangerous slant. Beyond us, still greater wooded mountains blocked the way, and in the canyon between, night had already fallen. I began to get scary. I could only think of bears and catamounts, so, as it was five o'clock, we decided to camp. The trees were immense. The lower branches came clear to the ground and grew so dense that any tree afforded a splendid shelter from the weather, but I was nervous and wanted one that would protect us against any possible attack. At last we found one growing in a crevice of what seemed to be a sheer wall of rock. Nothing could reach us on two sides, and in front two large trees had fallen, so that I could make a log heap which would give us warmth and make us safe. So, with rising spirits, I unpacked and prepared for the night. I soon had a roaring fire up against the logs, and, cutting away a few branches, let the heat into as snug a bedroom as anyone could wish. The pine needles made as soft a carpet as the wealthiest could afford. Springs abound in the mountains, so water was plenty. I staked jeems quite near so that the firelight would, fr would frighten away any wild thing that tried to harm him. Grass was very plentiful, so when he was made comfy, I made our bed and fried our trout. The branches had torn off the bag in which I had my bread, so it was lost in the forest. But who needs bread when, we, when they have good, mealy potatoes? In a short time we were eating like Lent was just over. We lost all the glory of the sunset, except what we got by reflection, being on the side of the mountain we were, with the dense woods between. Big sullen clouds were kept drifting over, and a wind got lost in the trees that kept them rocking and groaning in a horrid way. We were just as cozy as we could be, and the rest was as good as anything. I wish you could once sleep on the kind of bed we enjoyed that night. It was both soft and firm, with the clean, spicy smell of pine. The heat from our big fire came in, and we were warm as toast. It was so good to stretch out and rest. I kept thinking how superior I was, since I dared to take such an outing, when so many poor women down in Denver were bent over making their twenty cents per hour in order that they could spare a quarter to go to the show. I went to sleep with a powerfully self-satisfied feeling, but I awoke to realize that pride goeth before a fall. I could hardly remember where I was when I awoke, and I could almost hear the silence. Not a tree moaned, not a branch seemed to stir. 
I arose and my head came in violent contact with a snag that was not there when I went to bed. I thought either I must have grown taller or the tree shorter during the night. As soon as I peered out, the mystery was explained. Such a snowstorm I never saw. The snow had pressed the branches down lower, hence my bumped head. Our fire was burning merrily, and the heat kept the snow from in front. I scrambled out and poked up the fire. Then, as it was only five o'clock, I went back to bed. And then I began to think how many kinds of idiot I was. Here I was, thirty or forty miles from home, in the mountains where no one goes in the winter, and where I knew the snow got to be ten or fifteen feet deep. But I could never see the good of moping, so I got up and got breakfast while baby put her shoes on. We had our squirrels and more baked potatoes, and I had delicious black coffee. After I had eaten, I felt more hopeful. I knew Mr. Stewart would hunt, would hunt for me if he knew I was lost. It was true he wouldn't know which way to start, but I determined to rig up Jeems and turn him loose, for I knew he would go home and that he would leave a trail so that I could be found. I hated to do so, for I knew I should always have to be powerfully humble afterwards. Anyway, it was still snowing, great heavy flakes. They looked as large as dollars. I didn't want to start Jeems until the snow stopped, because I wanted him to leave a clear trail. I had sixteen loads for my gun, and I reasoned that I could likely kill enough food to last twice that many days by being careful what I shot at. It just kept snowing, so at last I decided to take a little hunt and provide for the day. I left Jereen happy with the towel rolled into a baby, and then went, went along the brow of the mountain for almost a mile, but the snow fell so thickly that I couldn't see far. Then I happened to look into the canyon that lay east of us and saw smoke. I looked toward it a long time, but could make out nothing but smoke. But presently I heard a dog bark, and I knew I was near a camp of some kind. I resolved to join them, so went back to break my own camp. At last everything was ready, and Jereen and I both mounted. Of all the times, if you think there is much comfort or even security in riding a pack horse in a snowstorm over mountains where there is no road, you are plumb wrong. Every once in a while a tree would unload its snow down our backs. Jeems kept stumbling and threatening to break our necks. At last we got down the mountainside, where a new danger confronted us. We might lose sight of the smoke or ride into a bog. But at last, after what seemed hours, we came into a clearing with a small log house and, what is rare in Wyoming, a fireplace. Three or four hounds set up their deep baying, and I knew by the chimney and the hounds that it was the home of a, of a southerner. A little old man came bustling out, chewing his tobacco so fast, and almost frantic about his suspenders, which it seemed he couldn't get adjusted. As I rode up, he said, quote, Whither, friend? End quote. And I said, Hither. Then he asked, quote, Air you spying around for one of them dinged game wardens arter the deer I killed yesterday? End quote. I told him I had never seen a game warden and that I didn't know he had killed a deer. Quote, Wall, air you spying around arter that gold mine I discovered over on the west side of Baldy? End quote. But after a while, I convinced him that I was no more or less than a foolish woman lost in the snow. Then he said, quote, Light, stranger, and look at your saddle. End quote. 
So I lit and looked. And then I asked him what part of the South he was from. He answered, quote, Yell County by gum. The best place in the United States or in the world either. End quote. That was my introduction to Zebulon Pike Parker. Only two, quote, Johnny Rebs, end quote, could have enjoyed each other's company as Zebulon Pike and myself did. He was so small and so old, but so cheerful and so sprightly, and a real Southerner. He had a big open fireplace with bag logs and andirons. How I enjoyed it all. How he feasted on some of the d deer he killed yesterday. And a real corn pone baked in a skillet down on the hearth. He was so full of happy recollections and had a few that were not so happy. He is, in some way, a kinsman of Pike's of Pike's Peak fame. And he came west, quote, just out of the wa, end quote on some expedition and, quote, just stayed, end quote. He told me about his life back in Yale County, and I feel that I know all of the youngins. There was George Henry, his only brother, and there was Phoebe and Muffy, whose real name is Martha, and poor little Mary Ann, whose death was described so feelingly that no one could keep back the tears. Lastly, there was little Mandy, the baby and his favorite, but who, I am afraid, was a selfish little beast since she had to have her prunellas when all the rest of the youngins had to wear shoes that old Uncle Buck made out of rawhide. But then, quote, her eyes were blue as morning glories and her hair was just like corn silk, so yaller and fluffy, end quote. Bless his simple, honest heart. His own eyes were blue and kind, and his poor, thin little shoulders are so round that they almost meet in front. How he loved to talk of his boyhood days. I can almost see his father and George Henry as they marched away to the Wa together, and the poor little mother's despair as she waited day after day for some word that never came. Poor little Mary Ann was drowned in the bayou where she was trying to get water lilies. She had wanted a white dress all her life, and so, when she was dead, they took down the white crossbar curtains, and mother made the little shroud by the light of a tallow dip. But, being made by hand, it took all the next day, too, so that they buried her by moonlight down back of the orchard under the big elm where the children had always had their swing. And they lined and covered her grave with, a, with big, fragrant water lilies. As they lowered the poor little homemade coffin into the grave, the mockingbirds began to sing, and they sang all that dewy moonlight night. Then little Mandy's wedding to Judge Carter's son Jim was described. She wore, quote, a cream-colored poplin with a red rose throwed up in it, end quote, and the lace that was on Grandma's wedding dress. There were bowers of sweet southern roses and honeysuckle and wisteria. Don't you know she was a dainty bride? At last it came out that he had not heard from home since he left it. Don't you ever write, I asked? Quote, no, I'm not an educated man, although I started to school. Yes'm, I started along of the rest, but they told me it was a Yankee teacher, and I was afraid. So when I got most to the schoolhouse, I hid in the bushes with my spelling book, so that is all the learning I ever got. But my mother was an educated woman, yes'm. She could both read and write. I have the Bible she gave me yet. Yes'm, you just wait and I'll show you. End quote. After some rummaging in a box, he came back with a small leather-bound Bible with print so small it was hard to read. 
After turning to the record of births and deaths, he handed it to me, his old, wrinkled face shining with pride as he said, quote, There, my mother wrote that with her own hand. End quote. I took the book and, after a little, deciphered that Zebulon Pike Parker was born February 10, 1830, written in the stiff, difficult style of long ago and written with pokeberry ink. He said his mother used to read about some, quote, old feller that was just covered with biles, end quote. So I read Job to him, and he was full of surprise they didn't, quote, get some cherry bark and some sarsaparilla and bile it good and get it to him, end quote. He had a side room to his cabin, which was his bedroom, so that night he spread down a buffalo robe and two bear skins before the fire for Jerine and me. After making sure there were no moths in them, I spread blankets over them and put a sleepy, happy girl to bed, for he had insisted on making molasses candy for her because they happened to be born on the same day of the month. And then he played the fiddle almost until one o'clock. He played all the simple, sweet old-time pieces in a rather squeaky, jerky way, I'm afraid, but the music suited the time and the place. Next morning, he called me early, and when I went out, I saw such a beautiful sunrise, well worth the effort of coming to see. I had thought his cabin in a canyon, but the snow had deceived me. For a few steps from the door, the mountains seemed to drop down suddenly for several hundred feet, and the first of the snow peaks seemed to lie right at our feet. Around its base is a great swamp, in which the swamp pines grow very thickly, and from which a vapor was rising that got about halfway up the snow peak all around. Fancy to yourself a big jewel box of dark green velvet lined with silver chiffon, the snow peak lying like an immense opal in its center, and over all the amber light of a new day. That is what it most looked like. Well, we went next to the corral, where I was surprised to find about thirty head of sheep. Some of them looked like they should have been sold ten years before. Don't you ever sell any of your sheep? I asked. No. There was a feller come here once and wanted to buy some of my weathers, but I wouldn't sell any because I didn't need any money. End quote. Then he went from animal to animal, caressing each and talking to them, calling them each by name. He milked his one cow, fed his two little mules, then he went back to the house to cook breakfast. We had deli delicious venison steak, smoking hot, and hoe cakes, and the bestest coffee and honey. After breakfast, we set out for home. Our pack transferred to one of the little mules. We rode Jeems, and Mr. Parker rode the other mule. He took us another way, down canyon after canyon, so that we were able to ride all the, all the time and could make better speed. We came down out of the snow and camped within twelve miles of home in an old, deserted ranch house. We had grouse and sage chicken for supper. I was so anxious to get home that I could hardly sleep, but at last I did and was only awakened by the odor of coffee and barely had time to wash before Zebulon Pike called breakfast. Afterwards, we fixed Jeems's pack so that I could still ride. For Zebulon Pike was very anxious to get back to his critters. Poor, lonely, childlike little man. He tried to tell me how glad he had been to entertain me. He said, quote, Why, I was plumb glad to see you and right sorry to have you go. Why, I would just as soon talk to you as to a... Yes'm, I would. It has been almost as good as talking to old Aunt Dilsey. End quote. 
If a Yankee had said the same thing to me, I would have demanded an instant apology. But I know how the Southern heart longs for the dear, kindly old, quote, end quote. So I came on homeward, thankful for the first time that I can't talk correctly. I got home at 12 and found, to my joy, that none of the men had returned, so I am safe from their superiority for a while at least. With many apologies for this outrageous letter, I am your ex-wash lady, Eleanor Rupert. The letters of Eleanor Rupert are in the public domain. The music for this show is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. Show notes are at AmericanEpistles.com. Click support to become a monthly supporter via Patreon. Check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, and all the places. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>